To begin, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land I'm recording on today. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I think the thing is, you just don't think it's going to be you. I was in shock. I think I went numb. I never thought that I would be that one. And the only reason why I did it is because you can also find out the gender. Welcome to One Screened Every Minute. I'm Elizabeth Callanan. Ask any expectant parent what they want for their child and they'll likely tell you, I just hope they're happy and healthy. I had never been through this before. I didn't know what to expect. Increasingly, people are seeking reassurance and peace of mind through non-invasive prenatal screening, or NIPT. This is the new up-and-coming common test that people are having now. But what happens when the results are unexpected? When they raise more questions than answers? And I guess that's the key. Do you want that information? In One Screened Every Minute, I'll bring you conversations with ordinary people who have received extraordinary information about their pregnancy. It was a Friday afternoon. I was about to go do school pickup. I received the call from the genetic counsellor and she's just called me and informed me that my blood test had come back and it has shown um, abnormalities. What does this diagnosis actually mean for us? What does it mean for this little baby? In each episode, we hear how they understood and navigated the options available to them after receiving screening results showing a high chance of chromosomal differences. I knew walking out in that moment that we had a decision to make around abortion. It's not my place to make that decision, really, given that it's not my body. You've got a, a short amount of time, you know, you need to make up your mind now. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. What she was trying to say to us was, I know this is a shock, but your life is going to be great. In fact, it's probably going to be better than what you had even imagined. We were such a different couple. Getting that diagnosis to the couple that said flippantly, we don't need screening. To be at those crossroads is a very, very different thing. These stories are shared so we can learn, but not judge. One Screened Every Minute is a must-listen for anyone wanting the full story about prenatal screening. In each episode of One Screened Every Minute, I'll be asking people to speak about early pregnancy experiences that, for a lot of reasons, are not often openly discussed. I thought it was only fair that I tell you a little of my background and what sits behind my interest in this area. I'm the mother of three children. My youngest is a girl called Greta, who is now four. Two years ago, I walked out of a paediatrician's office with her squishy cheek pressed against mine. My tears soaked into the pathology papers that I'd stuffed into the top of her pram. Moments before, the paediatrician had told me his suspicion about what might be the reason for my gorgeous girl's slower development. For the first time, I heard the words mosaic Down syndrome. Later that night, recounting the consult to my partner, I would forget the word mosaic. It's, it's, it's something like shattered glass, I told him. And that's how it felt. Despite having a happy, healthy, nearly two-year-old standing in front of me, 
I was sure that confirmation of this diagnosis would shatter her life and shatter our family's future. Would she be happy? Would she be healthy? How would this extra 21st chromosome affect her learning? Would she live independently, get a job, find a partner? And how important was all this anyway? As with my first two pregnancies, when I was pregnant with Greta, I'd opted for the combined first trimester screening. That's where blood test results taken at around 10 weeks are combined with ultrasound measurements taken between 11 and 13 weeks. These two results are combined to come up with a score. This score is the likelihood that the foetus has Down syndrome or another genetic difference, like trisomy 18 or Edwards syndrome. For each of my pregnancies, including Greta's, the score from the combined screening was a low chance for any genetic difference. Because Greta's extra chromosomes went undetected, I enjoyed a straightforward pregnancy. She was the only one of my three kids to easily breastfeed from the start. She was the best sleeper and the best eater, though as a four-year-old now she's not really great on the eating front. Greta was slower to walk and talk than her brothers had been. I googled and worried and eventually I made an appointment to see a paediatrician. At that first appointment, he was measured and kind. He examined Greta, he asked me lots of questions. Did I have an amniocentesis during pregnancy? No, the combined first trimester screening showed no further testing was indicated. What was her birth weight? She was a small baby, but so were her brothers. Did Greta feed well? Yep. Is there a family history of learning difficulties? No. Finally, he explained that he had a suspicion about Greta's slower development. He told me he wouldn't bet $1,000 on it, but he shared with me his hunch that Greta might have mosaic Down syndrome. There was enough in his mind to justify a test. The results were fast-tracked. A month after that first appointment, my husband and I were back in the paediatrician's office. The blood test had confirmed his hunch. Greta was diagnosed with mosaic Down syndrome. This means that some of her cells have an extra copy of the 21st chromosome and some have the typical number. I had 600 hours of sick leave accrued, I told the doctor. Should he be writing me a certificate? He looked at Greta, babbling away as she packed blocks into the wooden trolley, and he looked back at me. This is not a sick child, he said. There would be a flurry of appointments to monitor many of the health risks that came with a Down syndrome diagnosis, and we'd need to spend time learning how we could best support Greta's learning. But ultimately, we would settle into a new routine and life would go on. And it has. Over the past couple of years, I've learnt so much about Down syndrome, and people with Down syndrome and their families have been the greatest teachers. But as I came to understand more about Down syndrome and difference, I wondered, what if Greta's extra chromosomes had been discovered when she was still on the inside? If I had chosen non-invasive prenatal screening, which is being offered to more and more women, how might my experience have been different? For the women who share their stories in one screened every minute, This is not a hypothetical question. We'll hear how prospective parents have understood 
and navigated the options available to them when their screening results have shown chromosomal differences. One screened every minute brings these conversations out from behind the closed doors of consulting rooms. The podcast has been inspired by the TV show One Born Every Minute, an observational documentary which was originally a UK series. I watched One Born Every Minute religiously when I was pregnant. It was like you were there in the birth suite. Everyone's story was different. Every birth was different. You could see each woman making her own way. When it came to my own labours, I stored away these stories and I was able to draw on these women's experiences as I gave birth. In the past few years, as I became more interested in how women are supported through prenatal screening, I thought back to that show. I imagined how helpful it could be for prospective parents to be able to hear how others had experienced prenatal screening. There is a Frida Kahlo quote that I love. She said, I don't want you to think like me. I just want you to think. What I believe we all need and deserve is quality information and support that allows us to make informed decisions about prenatal screening. This includes whether to have it in the first place and balanced, timely and accurate information if a screening result shows a high chance of a chromosomal difference. I hope this podcast encourages more open discussion about the complexities that prospective parents are navigating. These are urgent conversations as more sensitive prenatal screening technology becomes more widely used. In this explainer episode, I've invited senior genetic counsellor Melody Menzies to talk about prenatal screening technology and terminology. Hi, Melody. Hi, Lizzie. Thanks for um, taking the time to join me today. If you could get us started by introducing yourself and telling us a bit about your professional experience in relation to prenatal screening. Sure. So I'm the head genetic counsellor and scientific director at Monash Ultrasound for Women, um, which offers ultrasound scans as well as prenatal screening tests to patients. I've been working as a genetic counsellor since 2008, and I've been in the prenatal setting that whole time. So I've done some work at the Royal Women's Hospital, and I've also been working at Monash Ultrasound for Women since 2010. Um, so it's, it's been quite a while that I've been working in this area, and I've seen technology rapidly change over that short period of time in this area. Mm, I can imagine. So it sounds like we've got the right person for the job today. <laughs> and in particular, your um, experience in, in relation to non-invasive prenatal screening, What's can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so I was travelling, I guess, back and forth to Canada, which is where I'm from, and went to conferences and saw that non-invasive screening was on the horizon Non-invasive prenatal screening was introduced in around 2013, and it's been available for women in Australia um, since that time. So at Monash Ultrasound for Women, we were the first clinic in Victoria to introduce the screening, and that was really because we could see a need for women um, who were screening with an increased probability or an increased chance on their first trimester combined screen and wanted some additional information about the pregnancy, but didn't want to risk miscarriage. So this was a way for those women to get 
some some um, I guess more information about the pregnancy without the risk of miscarriage from having an invasive test. Mm. And this was this cohort were women who had become pregnant by IVF. Yeah, that's right. So many of the women were pregnant via IVF, so they were a little bit older. And with the first trimester combined screening test, age is a factor in how it calculates the probability for the conditions that it screens for. So women that were a bit older were much more likely to get uh, increased chance result. And many of them didn't want to risk the pregnancy by um, having a CVS or an amnio, but wanted some additional information because obviously once you get a high chance result, you're often anxious and they wanted to know, but they didn't want to risk miscarriage to have to have that information. Hmm. So can we talk about, sort of take us through what prenatal screening options are available now for, for prospective parents in Australia? Yeah, so there are, um, I guess, three prenatal screening tests that are offered widely in Australia. Two of them look at biochemical analytes that come from the placenta, and that's first trimester combined screening and second trimester maternal serum screening. So those are sort of more traditional tests that have been offered for a little while anyway. Um, And they look at the first trimester screening looks at these biochemical analytes and combines them with the mum's age, her weight, some ultrasound markers, so the nuchal translucency or the fluid behind the baby's neck, the length of the baby, whether or not there's a nasal bone present or absent, and that gives um, a chance or a probability result on the report which is either then considered to be a high chance or a low chance. So that test has about a 5% false positive. And then there's also second trimester combined screening. So that's just the blood test and the biochemical analytes. And that's done sort of from 15, 14 weeks onwards of pregnancy. Um, And again, that just gives a um, probability result using maternal age as well as those hormone markers. And then the third test, which has come out more recently, is the non-invasive screening, whereby the lab are able to get maternal and fetal cell-free DNA from maternal blood. Um, Those tests vary in what they look for. They all look for what they call the common chromosome aneuploidies in pregnancy, which are trisomy 21, trisomy 18, trisomy 13, and the sex chromosome aneuploidies as well. And how has non-invasive prenatal screening changed the landscape of prenatal screening? Yeah, look, it's definitely changed the landscape of prenatal screening in the short time that it's been introduced. I think because the non-invasive prenatal screening has a higher accuracy rate than the previous tests, um, it does feel different to first trimester combined screening and second trimester screening where you were giving someone a probability, but the most likely outcome was the pregnancy wasn't affected with that condition. Um, I think now when you get a high risk result, there is a higher chance. It's still a chance. It still doesn't mean that you do have a pregnancy affected, but there is a higher chance. And it um, in some ways is causing more uncertainty as people Um, might get a higher chance result for a chromosome that isn't as common, um, that we don't know as much about, or um, I guess even get a higher chance for one of the common chromosomes. But, you know, obviously we don't know whether or not it's, whether or not the pregnancy has that condition or not. 
And the, I guess the other obvious sort of difference in talking about where it fits within current offerings is that it its results are returned earlier, I guess. Yeah, that's actually a very good point too. So results are returned earlier. So the earliest you can have the non-invasive test is in the 10th week of pregnancy mm-hmm. and results take about a week to come back. Mm. So they're returned earlier than previously. Um, and I think, you know, the, the issues that we've always had with prenatal screening is women have screening, we know, for reassurance. Um, with non-invasive screening, it's often to find out the um, sex of their baby so that they can bond with the baby, perhaps have a gender reveal. Um, and I think nobody having screening expects to come back with a high chance or an increased chance result. And so when people do come back with that result, they're unsure what they would do and often are unsure whether or not they even wanted the information to begin with. Mm. So I Mm. think the non-invasive screening has raised the stakes in that um, because it's earlier and because the accuracy is better than previously because we're looking at DNA, um, it is even more important really for women and their partners to think about whether or not they want this information before they have the test and make an informed decision about whether this is going to be useful for them or not. Mm. It might be a good time to perhaps talk a bit about the difference between screening and diagnostic tests. Yeah, so screening isn't 100%. So that's, I guess, the way that I often put it. So with screening, what we call false positives and false negatives occur. So that means sometimes people will get an increased chance result and have a pregnancy that isn't affected with that condition. And sometimes people will get a low chance result and have a pregnancy that is affected by the condition. So it isn't... 100% there's various biological reasons as to why those tests are not diagnostic. So with the NIPS or the screening, the main thing is we're getting placental DNA, not actually fetal DNA, and we're also getting maternal DNA. So sometimes we'll get a high or an increased probability, increased chance result and have a pregnancy that doesn't have that condition. It actually happens quite a lot. So I've seen that happen many times um, since the non-invasive screening has been available. And I've we've also seen the flip side of that where people have received low chance results on the screening test and then have a child diagnosed with the condition either in pregnancy or at birth that they had been screened for. So in terms of if, if someone gets a high chance screening result and they want they decide they want to pursue diagnostic options during the pregnancy what what are their options what do those tests look like yeah so the options for diagnostic testing in the pregnancy is um, via cvs or amniocentesis which are sampling methods so cvs is done from around 11 weeks of pregnancy and what does cvs stand for cvs is chorionic villus sampling So um, chorionic villus sampling is referred to as CVS, which is the acronym, and it involves sampling some of the placenta. So the DNA doesn't actually come from the fetus itself. It comes from the placenta. And most of the time, the placenta and the fetus are the same, but not all of the time. Um, So that test is done earlier. It's done from about 11 weeks onwards till the end of the 13th week. It has a miscarriage risk of roughly around 1 in 500, which is um, related to the procedure. Okay. How it works is it involves a needle being 
put through the abdomen under ultrasound guidance and some of the placenta being sampled. So the needle doesn't touch the baby, it only samples the placenta. That's one of the tests. And then the other test is called amniocentesis. So that one's done from around 15 weeks onwards. Um, and instead of sampling placenta, it samples the fluid from around the baby. So again, it involves a fine needle being put through the belly um, and some amniotic fluid sampled, which contains basically dead cells from the baby because um, the baby's breathing in and peeing out amniotic fluid. So that sends, both of those samples are then sent to the lab. So the same test can be done on both CVS or amnio, which is often a karyotype or a molecular karyotype where they look at the 23 pairs of chromosomes and also go further and look at the gene. So large duplications or deletions, which is losses or gains in the genes, as well as looking at the chromosomes. Mm -hmm. They're considered diagnostic. So they're more of a yes, no result. Although because the CVS test is looking at placenta, as I said, sometimes placenta and fetus are different and patients may need to have some additional testing like an amnio if we do get a result that looks like it may not be quite so accurate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's so much more complex when you're trying to explain it um, like this, isn't it, really? It's very complicated. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And look, I think, um, you know, as, as we'll hear in the upcoming episodes, you realise how much information there is for prospective parents to absorb and take in and, um, and you know, it may be the only time they've ever turned their minds to or ever um, going to turn their minds to genetic science and what that means. And it's, you know, it's, as you say, it's a high, you know, high stakes situation. I wonder, can you tell me how many prospective parents are choosing non-invasive prenatal screening? Yeah. So I think um, some of the figures showed it's somewhere between 40 and 60% of the pregnant women are now choosing non-invasive prenatal screening as a first line test. It's really, I think, largely being driven by the women themselves choosing the testing. And that's certainly increased. So when, we, when it first started and we were first offering this test, it was mainly women who were a bit older or had already returned a high chance result on their first trimester combined screening that were having the test. We're finding now the demographics have shifted and many women are having this as a first line test. So the first screening test that they have in their pregnancy. And what, what other, what percentage of results show a high chance of chromosomal difference? I think roughly two to 3% of results will show um, a high chance of a chromosomal difference. Sure. And what Amongst that 2 to 3%, what are the most common differences that, that are found? So the most common differences that are found are trisomy 21, so three copies of chromosome 21. Trisomy 18 would be the next most common, so three copies of chromosome 18. Um, trisomy 13, um, three copies of chromosome 13, and also um, missing or extra sex chromosomes. So I guess it's important to say all those those might be found on the screening test. That doesn't mean that the pregnancy or the fetus actually has those conditions, but they're the most common things that the test will come back as a high chance result for. 
So Melody, can you explain a bit about the genetic differences that lead to the chromosomal conditions that are screened for? Yeah, so the typical number of chromosomes in a human cell is um, 23 pairs or 46 chromosomes in total. And in general, we get um, one from our biological mother and one from our biological father for each of those 23 pairs of chromosomes. In some instances, at the time of conception, either the sperm or the egg gives an extra chromosome. So instead of having two copies of each of those pairs, some individuals have an extra copy or sometimes, and in particular with the sex chromosome, sometimes there might be a missing copy of one of the chromosomes. So when it comes to conditions like Down syndrome, trisomy 13 and 18, they're all caused by an extra copy of those chromosome numbers. So Down syndrome is referred to as trisomy 21, so three copies of chromosome 21, trisomy 18, so three copies of chromosome 18. And it's that extra genetic material that causes some of the differences that we see in individuals with these conditions. The reason we see these conditions more commonly than things like trisomy 1, which we would very, very, very rarely see, is because, for example, chromosome 21 is smaller, so there's less genes on it, and um, individuals are able to survive with three copies of the genes that are on chromosome 21, whereas chromosome 1 has lots of genetic material on it, and in theory, pregnancies will likely not implant or miscarry early if you had a third copy of chromosome 1. So these common ones are the common ones where pregnancies will progress and people can live with the conditions, whereas with some of the other chromosomes that you may not have heard of, most of those pregnancies would miscarry very early, maybe before people even knew that they were pregnant. Mm, mm. Interesting. I hadn't heard about that. I didn't understand about the the amount of genetic material and that's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So trisomy 13 and trisomy 18 are considered to be life-limiting conditions. So individuals with those conditions often, pregnancies with those conditions often don't make it to term and, and in miscarriage or stillbirth, unfortunately. And again, that's because of the amount of genetic information. But there are sometimes cases, you know, in medicine, nothing's ever absolute. And sometimes, you know, there are cases in the literature and in on social media of people with these conditions surviving for longer, longer periods of time. Um, and again, that's I think that's dependent on each individual. And it can also depend on mosaicism. Mosaicism occurs when individuals have some cells that have the typical number of chromosomes, so that 46 number, and some cells that have an extra chromosome or have a missing chromosome. So it's a combination of both the typical chromosome number as well as an extra or missing chromosome in other cells. And that level of mosaicism can impact or influence the clinical features that that person might have. So if you have more cells that have the typical chromosome complement, you might have a milder case of that condition. And with trisomy 18, for example, it may then not be a life-limiting condition if you have mosaicism where some cells have the typical number and some cells don't. And Melody, chromosomal deletions. So um, there are also deletions and duplications that can occur. Again, it will depend on how big or small they are as to whether or not it's something that can survive through a pregnancy. 
that individuals can be born with or not. And again, I guess the level, the, the clinical features that we see in those individuals will depend on what genes are deleted. Mm. One of the things that the non-invasive prenatal screening looks at that previous prenatal screening platforms and tests haven't looked at is the sex chromosomes. So it's looking not only for the sex of the fetus, but it's also looking to see if the fetus has extra or missing sex chromosomes. And again, a bit like Down syndrome, there's there's a bit of ascertainment bias in the data that's in textbooks because people with these conditions are often not diagnosed until puberty or later in life when they maybe go to have children of their own and have are having issues with infertility. Um, and so, you know, often if you read textbooks, it might talk about things like developmental delay or lower IQ, which may be ascertainment bias because in the past, individuals with these conditions would have been picked up in childhood if they did have some delay and all the people with the conditions that didn't have delay wouldn't have been picked up until adulthood or possibly puberty if they don't go into puberty. So I've found counseling for these sex chromosome conditions to be very tricky because a lot of the information out there is not up to date because we weren't screening thousands and thousands and thousands of women for these conditions. I think our knowledge of them is still evolving. With these sex chromosome conditions, people often don't know that we're screening for them in the non-invasive testing. Um, And so often it is information that they wish they didn't know about a child. Um, They may not make a decision to have further testing. It may increase their anxiety. Um, So that's what I find really challenging um, because I think once people, you know, you know. Yeah, once you know, you know exactly, and you can't take it back. Yeah. And the the other part of it is the placenta is more likely to have mistakes with the sex chromosomes, where you have extra or missing that the fetus doesn't have. So that adds an extra layer because the non-invasive tests are more, I guess, depends on which condition. But often these conditions, like Turner syndrome, for example, if you get a high risk result, there may only be a twenty percent chance that the fetus has that condition. So there's, um, for these, there's often a higher chance of a false positive result. Mm, mm. So I guess um, part of prospective parents uh, seeking this test out at an earlier time um, is that often I imagine they're going through their GPs and their um, their GPs are sort of tasked with supporting them around the decision to undertake the screening and sort of what that means can you talk a bit about what the challenges might be there or? Yeah. So I think most women would probably present to a GP in the first instance when they're pregnant. And this is something um, that might be offered by the GP. I think time is always um, a limiting factor in providing pre-test counseling in this setting. And I think that can be one of the biggest challenges is having the time, I think, to sit with the patient and discuss the, the different options and whether or not this is relevant information for them. And I think, you know, busy GP practices often don't have the time to do that. I also think that the information that is out there about these conditions, um, and in particular Down syndrome, as well as the sex chromosome aneuploidies, is limited and outdated. 
you know, the information is often from textbooks and not from families and their experience. And I do believe that the experience for these children and for these families has changed considerably in the last sort of, you know, 10 years, five years, you know, and it, it constantly is changing as, um, as we, I think, focus on ability and, um, have things like early intervention, which obviously improves outcomes for all children. So I, th- I think that that, for me, I see as the biggest challenge is trying to get good information out there for prospective parents to make decisions before they even have these tests about whether or not they want this information. So Melody, we talk about informed decision making in relation to prenatal screening. You know, it seems like what you know, we should all be aiming for. Um, in your view, what does that look like? Yeah, so I think informed decision-making or informed choice is a really important part of prenatal screening, but often informed choice doesn't happen prior to people having these tests. So like I said, I think often women choose to have these tests for reassurance or in the case of the non-invasive screening, perhaps to find out the sex of their baby, to bond with their baby, And they don't think through what they might do if they get an increased chance result. So really making an informed decision relies on having accurate, balanced information as well as time to make that decision. So you have to have the information and have the ability to deliberate as to whether or not this is something that you want to do. And ideally that choice is made before you have screening. Often because I see women after they've received their high chance result or their increased chance result, um, I'm trying to facilitate informed decision making after they've already had the test and after they've already received the result. And it may be something that they didn't want to know to begin with. Um, And, you know, it may be that once they receive that result, they're anxious and they feel the need to have further testing, even though they might not have considered that otherwise. And also, you know, in pregnancy, when you're, um, I think, you know, emotions are high, that's a high stakes and people may not make a decision that they would have made otherwise if in that situation where they're in crisis, they're in shock, they've been given an increased chance result. I think it's important that people think through that before, again, before they have the test. But unfortunately, that often doesn't happen. Mm, mm. And I I wonder what it means to be making these decisions in the context of a, you know, society that we we know that there's stigma um, around disability and... Yeah, I I think people think that because we're screening for these conditions, they're automatically bad. And that's what I find really challenging is trying to um, give people information when we're already on the back foot after they've already had or received a high chance result. Mm. And I think that a lot of people are worried about the cost and having extra appointments and having to pay for physio and things like that. And I mean, hopefully there's a bit more funding for those things now, but I think as well, not having exposure to people with disabilities can play a big role in, in the choices that people make. And I guess it's sort of screening kind of creates a bit of a vicious cycle in that way, doesn't it? Where there's less, you know, there's less, less people around with those conditions as a result of screening. So people are less, you know, likely to bump into someone down the street with those conditions. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. 
So uh, generally speaking, what do you find are the biggest challenges for prospective parents um, making decisions about results showing a high chance or a diagnosis of a chromosomal condition? I would like to see everybody that receives a high chance result see a genetic counsellor because this is what we're trained to do. So we're trained to um, facilitate autonomy and facilitate informed decision-making, provide patients with the time to deliberate and the support, um, and also provide balanced information that's factual. So I would really like to see all patients that have a high chance result have genetic counselling and have the ability to make a decision that's the right decision for them with accurate and balanced information and with that support. Mm. I mean, it seems in, you know, making such a significant decision about, uh, you know, wanted pregnancy, that that's the least we could be asking for. That's the least that... Aiming for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I think you're right. Um, and that the, I think that a limiting thing is the accurate information. Mm. Um, I think this podcast will go a long way in hearing people's voices and listening to, to those stories. But um, I think hearing voices from families as well is really important mm. when mm. making mm. these decisions because they've got the lived experience. And that's what I was going to ask, like how, how do you go about supporting prospective parents getting that accurate and balanced information. Or yeah. Um, we saw recently um, in The Upside was a, a really sort of powerful example of Julia Hales that, who hosted that documentary who uh, she's a woman around about my age who has Down syndrome and, you know, she was asking some pretty uh, pointed questions to a number of experts around prenatal screening and um, and also just gathering information from families and, um, you know, putting across her own views about life with Down syndrome. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think the more of that we see, um, the more we can get accurate information out there about what it's like to live with Down syndrome or live with another genetic condition. And I, so I know that for, for myself, I refer my patients to the Down Syndrome Association of Victoria or DSV and they have um, family support workers who can talk to them and who they can ask questions of. Yeah, all the state-based associations will be able to offer that connection to families of people wanting to find out more information where they've yeah, found out some unexpected information during their pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure that that must be hard for those families as well to fulfill that role, but I think it's so important that people do have access to that because there's questions that um, I know that my patients will ask me that I just can't answer but that a parent would be able to answer and um, a textbook can't answer that for us either. Yeah. One of the challenges that, that, that we hear about is in trying to give that balanced information, there's this uh, propensity to sort of provide a laundry list of, um, I sometimes call it the laundry list of doom. Um, <laughs> I just wonder if you can sort of speak a bit about that. And yeah, and, and I imagine it's, you know, potentially a challenge in, in your own work. It's it's balancing that information or I don't know. Yeah, well, I think I think I always, tr- you know, it, it probably depends on how you convey the laundry list. And also, you know, although we do have to, you know, obviously 
if you're going to try to ensure that people make an informed choice, you need to give them some good clinical information about what living with this condition could entail. But that doesn't mean that everyone with Down syndrome has a cardiac problem or needs, you know, heart surgery or that kind of thing. So, you know, ensuring that you actually provide accurate information when it comes to the clinical features, but the flip side of it is also the achievement that these children and adults with Down syndrome you know, can achieve in the abilities that they can have and balancing out the laundry list with achievement is, is the flip side of it is, you know, often people will only get the laundry list and won't hear that individuals with Down syndrome can live meaningful, happy lives. And I think at the end of the day, all we, we, we want for our children is that they're happy. <laughs> and you know, I think with the interventions that we've put in place and expecting achievement and early interventions in terms of things like speech therapy, I think that has improved not just for Down syndrome, but for lots of children and lots of conditions has improved outcomes. I think people will often think of someone that they that might have gone to school with them with a disability, but don't actually see what that life would be like now. And it's not until you see, you know, people like Julia Hales or on TV um, or a Qantas ad of children with Down syndrome with a choreographed dance or see someone in the supermarket or at a cafe or, um, you know, when you're going about your daily lives. I think it's it's hard to picture that if you're only given a laundry list. It's hard to picture achievement and it's hard to picture ability and it's crucial, I think, to provide both. Um, But as health professionals, I think we're used to providing the laundry list for everything as to what could go wrong. Mm, mm. And I think we also work in, um, and this is awful, but we work in an area where I think we're always worried about the medical legal ramifications or risk of not providing people the laundry list. If they come back and say, you didn't tell me that this is what this was going to be like, or you didn't tell me that I could have this symptom and, um, and that, you know, that we haven't disclosed that. So I think that that's tricky, but I think it's about providing that balance is equally as important. And I always, I'm worried that, you know, the flip side of that could still happen where someone could, you know, interact with someone with Down syndrome at work or in the community and go back to, a health professional and say, you didn't tell me that that's what my child could have achieved. You didn't tell me that that's what this could have been like for them. So yeah, the risks should go both ways of not providing that information in a balanced way. That's really important. So are there any common misconceptions about non-invasive prenatal screening that you'd like the opportunity to correct? (laughs) Yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Go for it. You've got the floor. <laughs> um, I think, you know, I think I can't stress enough that it is still a screening test. So even though we say that it's more accurate, we're looking at DNA. Um, we even see all the time that it may say that you have a male fetus and you have a female fetus. So even, you know, to that level, we see discrepancies occur. The gender reveal mightn't even be, mightn't have the right yeah. colour cake. <laughs> exactly right. So I've, um, yeah, seen many a disappointed parent when the 
the fetal sex at 20 weeks is different to the NIPT result. Wow. Um, and it happens quite often. So about, you know, 1% of the time where, where the um, sex of the baby is discordant to the sex on the result. Mm. Um, so it's very important that for any of the conditions that this test screens for, it's not giving a yes or no answer. It's looking at placental DNA, not fetal DNA. And um, people shouldn't really be making decisions about whether or not to continue a pregnancy or terminate a pregnancy based on a screening result um, in itself because those results can be wrong and we've seen lots of false positives and false negatives occur with this test. So it's really important that when you know, you're making decisions with the information you get from this test that you keep that in mind. Mm, mm. Yeah, good to know. Now, Melody, if there are prospective parents listening and they're thinking, I want more information about whether non-invasive prenatal screening is right for me, or perhaps they've had a high chance screening result and they're wanting additional support around decision making that they're not already getting, where would you suggest that they go? So I would suggest that if for those that have a high chance result, they ask for a referral to their local genetic counselling service. So there are genetic counselling services at most of the public maternity hospitals in um, Australia. And there's also private genetic counselling services as well. There are often genetic counsellors in ultrasound clinics. That's becoming more and more common. And this is really our role to help people make decisions with this, with this complicated, complex information that are right for them. Um, and our decisions in line with their values. Mm. And in terms of accessing that, is that like, can that be accessed for free or you? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So in the public hospital system, it is free. Often if in ultrasound clinics, if you're a patient of that clinic and having your scans there, it's part of, you know, what you would pay for having a private ultrasound scan. Um, and then there are private genetic counselors who offer a fee for service as well. I think some of the NIPT providers provide genetic counselling as part of the test. So the lab that you've had the test through should and hopefully does provide genetic counselling. And that may be a good thing to look at beforehand. So to check that genetic counselling is provided with the lab that you choose to use for your non-invasive screening. Mm, mm. And the parents who are thinking about, do I, do I want this information? Do I want to do this screening? Yeah, so that's a bit trickier, I think, to try to get the information. So again, some of the labs will provide pre-test genetic counselling on request. So if you have questions, if you're unsure if this is the right thing for you, some of the labs or some of the um, platforms that offer this testing will provide that on request. Usually there's no cost. It's just about ringing someone up and having a bit of a chat. Obviously, people's referring doctors, their GPs would be another place to go. I would ideally love to refer you to a website that has balanced information that I could tell people to go to, to find that. And I think maybe um, that's something that I'm going to have to work on myself to make sure that we <laughs> <laughs> we have that as a resource. Because I think, Lizzie, you've just opened up a bit of a hole where, um, mm. <laughs> where perhaps that um, that bit might not be easily accessible. And I've just told you that I think the pretest counseling or the pretest information is important mm, mm. and it may not actually be 
readily accessible mm. for everyone. Well, look, I think listening to what you've just said today, listening to this explainer episode might be a good start, hey? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely, absolutely right. When we um, on that note, actually, when we first started offering the non-invasive screening, we did provide pre-test counselling for everyone. Um, and there probably are some pockets where that is provided. But because the uptake has increased so dramatically and there's a finite number of genetic counsellors and a finite number of people who can explain and have the, the expertise to go through this information, the pre-test counselling has really fallen by and it, it tends to be the post-test that genetic counsellors now focus on just due to demand because those are the people that really do need genetic counselling and we have to triage our resources, unfortunately. Mm. And again, talking about that pre-test information, the stuff about the sex chromosomes is often missing. And is does every non-invasive prenatal screening test test for the sex chromosomes? So they all test for them. Sometimes it's an optional thing where your doctor has to tick that you want the test or not. And sometimes it's done regardless, like for everyone. So again, it depends on each platform. Mm. And when we were offering pre-test counseling for women um, prior to having the non-invasive testing, when we would go through the information about the sex chromosomes, we found about 40% of women chose not to find out that information. But unfortunately, we don't have the resources to provide pre-test counselling for everyone anymore due to the volume of people having these tests. Um, so that's become more difficult. Mm. Funding request. <laughs> we need some more genetic counsellors. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's really interesting. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Melody, thank you so much for your time today. While the podcast's very much about hearing directly from prospective parents about their screening experiences and decision-making, I think it's so important that we're able to start the series with a good shared understanding of the technology and the terminology that will be referred to during the coming episodes. So I yeah, just want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your insights today. Thank you so much for having me, Lizzie, and I very much look forward to listening to the podcast. Finally, I want to acknowledge that parts of the conversations in the following episodes can be heavy. If any difficult emotions come up for people that they want to talk through, there are a number of different support options, from contacting your GP as a starting point to getting in touch with specialist support networks that might be relevant to you. There's a full list in the episode notes. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Elizabeth Callanan, and you've been listening to One Screened Every Minute. There are notes for each episode over at onescreenedeveryminute.com. Thanks to Everpatient series producer Joel Supple and to the University of Melbourne, Melbourne Disability Institute and the Vasudhara Foundation for supporting the podcast and allowing these important stories to be shared. Mm-hmm.